All right. So uh, even to 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 just jump right in, I had you know when I I was uh, talking about future folks who I wanted to bring on to Video Learning Lab, a lot of folks would you know look you up and say like, why are you having a higher education person on for a primarily learning and development podcast? And so the connection that I made, you know, having work, you know, when I was a grad student, I spent two years working uh, in uh, different teaching and training centers at Teachers College. And so I had a, a little bit of a, of a brush up with um, working in higher education. My takeaways were that it was very similar to L&D in that we have really long timelines to determine uh, performance-based outcomes. You have entrenched attitudes about the value placed on education and its and its worth. And then the thing that really clicked for me was ex everything works extremely slowly, whether that's through politicking or the request process. The key difference being between higher education and learning and development is that uh, higher education is like 10 times worse. Is that is that a fair assumption? It is. Uh, the more I think about it, and at this point, I've been teaching where I am now for about uh, five years, actually a little bit longer. And I do think that higher ed is sort of this very strange space because it, there's a huge split. And I think that we tend to put something like a college or a university or any sort of giant educational institution like that. We think of it as a monolith, but it fundamentally is not. That, mm. And this is actually one of the things that I do like about higher ed. <laughs> we have the positive too. So on a macro level, universities and colleges evolve very slowly, if at all. A lot of the things that professors are doing, and I've really learned this a lot since I've been doing AI, AI training, we have professors who've been doing the same thing for 30, 40, 50 years. So they haven't really mm -hmm. updated their curriculum at all. And that in many ways is in keeping with how universities and colleges overall have functioned. But there is the other side of it. I don't get excited about that part. The part I do get excited about are the, the universities in a micro way. Mm -hmm. If I decide to make a change, if I go home today and I think, you know, that writing course would really benefit from blank, I will go change it. I will change it immediately. I do not have anyone I need to run it by. I have complete autonomy within a very limited scope. And so, and I really use this to my own advantage. And, and sometimes it gets me in trouble. Right? Sometimes, I would say more often than not, I'm able to slide by. My institution is very um, supportive. And I also have the benefit of at my college being the AI person. So whenever someone asks why you're doing that, my kind of initial response is that no one should be surprised that I'm doing things, these things because I've been very honest with how I'm using AI and trying to use it as a way to rethink writing. And so that mm -hmm. on a micro level, that ability to play and experiment and change a curriculum at the drop of a hat that's the exciting part. And I think that sometimes we lose that, that I know um, very, very innovative professors who have done radical things without needing any approval because that's how the universities work. So I have um, a friend, Lance Cummings, who teaches an English professor. He stopped teaching writing. Mm -hmm. He actually reworked his entire class around AI operations and thinking about that as content creation, much less than writing. And so he was able to just change that. Um, mm -hmm. I was recently in a meeting and it was all just English faculty members. And I asked them, is it important for students to write 
essays anymore, right? And if so, what should those essays look like? They definitely shouldn't be five paragraph essays, right? They should look mm. fundamentally different. And so I think that sort of mix is very much representative of universities as a whole. And I come into contact with that constantly because universities aren't special. Colleges aren't special. We have our own politics. We have um, this very extreme form of traditionalism, uh, traditionalism which you mentioned. Um, and because everything is so split apart and we have our own silos, I think everything's just more, it might be more extreme than what's in culture and our society more broadly, but there's nothing special about it. We have a lot of the same positives and negatives, especially when it comes to just using learning science. Some professors are really good about it and mm -hmm. others, they just teach the same thing. And so they just assume that it's working and so they don't fix it. And, and my hope with AI is that it's going to shine a light on what has been broken for years. Mm -hmm. And I have my own limitations with this. So I teach writing and uh, I believe in teaching writing, whatever that is, I'll put it in giant scare quotes. And as I started to do more training, so after ChatGBD came out and I started experimenting with it and doing more training and everything else, um, I started to come into contact with methods of learning and teaching that I thought died decades ago. Can you I give started... us some examples? Yeah. So I started to learn that faculty members are still looking over essays and marking them up with red pens, right? Yeah. Or the virtual version of that. And they're grading them entirely based on grammar. I thought that died 20 years ago. I didn't even think people were still doing that. Um, I've also come into contact with the five paragraph essay. I've never, ever, ever taught one. I've never been taught to teach one. I have, I've written maybe one in my entire life as a student, right? That kind of very mm. easy to do circular essay that doesn't really say anything, but it has an argument. It backs up it. Okay. I never, ever wrote those, at, you know, really in high school and college. And I thought it died. I, mm -hmm. I thought it was a dead form. And then as soon as I started training, I started to realize that it absolutely is not. And you have to do a lot of work to say, oh, I thought the, you know, this was broken 20 years ago. And if AI hopefully is the sledgehammer we need to break that kind of stuff, I'm totally okay with that. Because I, I really, I, I thought it was already dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, to connect it back to what you were saying before about, you know, there are, it almost seems like, uh, higher ed institutions are, are kind of a double-edged sword in that they're so big and un unwieldy that if you're in your silo and you want to make changes, you can do that, you know, without a lot of consequence. Like if you want to innovate in your small micro area, in your small part of your silo, you're able to do that and um, in, a, in a fairly safe way. But on the other hand, those folks who've been doing the same lecture for 40, 50 years, and they're also not experiencing any consequences of that as well. And maybe AI is the first, is going to be that disruptive technology that really forces higher education to see, you know, should things be different? I, I think what that makes me think of is that, you know, I'm, I'm not, I have to say, I'm not the most up-to-date on the higher, on kind of where we are in the story of like generative AI and higher education. I think at the time we're recording this, students are just starting, I think their first semester really getting a chance to wrap their head around AI. And I know this is going to date the episode, but, uh, and people are going to be like, what took you so long, Kevin, to edit this? But right now we're in September. So students have just uh, really uh, large language models made their splash, what uh, really made their splash in higher ed in what, like March, February, is that fair? 
Yeah. And so, and so we've had kind of that semester where it shook up a lot of things, but you know, the semester is already in flow. Then we've had the summer and now this is the first semester for generative ad or or large language models really to, to change higher education. So I guess from your perspective, how's it going so far? What is the latest that you're seeing as, as the semester is kicking off? I'm going to start off with a worry. My worry (laughs) is that faculty members and administrators just stopped thinking about AI over the summer. That's what I worried happened. And I think now institutions in higher education are starting to get a sense that they need to have some strategy going forward. I was sort of surprised by how late things were. And I do a lot of training with universities and colleges. And June and July, were kind of slow. I expected them to have much more out there in terms of professional development, but I think that the faculty went off, did their own thing, did their research, whatever they were doing. And then I started to get a lot of recommendations, just, or sorry, recommendations, requests for training in batches by the end of July. And this was training, training for what? These are so these are um, basic faculty or usually were basic faculty professional development. So an intro to AI, yeah. how to use it to both in, both in their teaching and in the actual classroom. Um, and so I started to get those requests and they tended to be for August or early September, which is just way too late to start thinking through some of these things. And uh, my other worry as a general trend is that and I'm hoping this is not the case, many colleges and universities have set up one and done training Mm -hmm. sessions, Mm -hmm. bringing in your faculty and usually not required. So just a recommended session for an hour, maybe not even. You talk about AI, so you might listen to a presentation for 30, 45 minutes, something like that, have a QA, and a and then you ride off into the sunset. And that is absolutely how I think it should not work. I don't think that that is going to change anything because colleges have a general problem. And you mentioned this before, even with the micro changes that professors can make, systemic change has been elusive for a really, really long time. And we know that for most of us, lecture style learning doesn't work. Right? Mm-hmm. We know all these things about the pitfalls of kind of the traditional college teaching, but systemic change just has not happened at all. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that we need to think about that as we're going into the fall. I think that colleges and universities and as a whole, and I'll say faculty members as a whole, ha- the consensus is that they know about AI, at least a little bit, mm-hmm. and they have this mixture of worry and idealism. And I think that's totally okay, right? I, I'm totally um, ready to work with that as a starting point. And the question is how? how can they use AI in their classrooms, in their own research, whatever they're Ooh. focusing on. And that's mm-hmm. where they're stumbling, right? That's where they need that additional help, that they, they know a little bit about it. Maybe they've even played with it a few times, but they either they either abandoned it too early or they didn't really get to see how something like ChatGPT or Claude or whatever they're using can be used for education and to really encourage critical thinking and that sort of work. I think that a lot of faculty members are now, and I hope this continues to be the case, trying to focus on the how. I think that, and this is not ideal, I wish it were different, but I think in the fall, things are gonna hit the fan a little bit 
especially when it comes to academic integrity. And I do think we will mm -hmm. have traditionalists really have a very narrow understanding of what that is. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm hoping that after things hit the fan for the fall, when we get into the spring, so around you know late January for most colleges, most institutions, that then we'll start to see the needle actually move. Mm. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping anyway, but I, I don't know if it's gonna happen in the fall, but I think the fall is gonna be about just getting a sense of how pervasive AI is and how many students are actually using it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely hear you there. It's uh, over the summer, you know, it's the, the biggest concern, I think, uh, when it hit higher ed was, you know, essay writing. How are we going to be able to tell who wrote what? And we went through the another wave of AI detectors, which arguably is not the solution uh, for using it, not using AI in uh, a higher ed uh, institution. I think one thing I'm very yeah. curious about, and uh, I'm going to put you on the, the spot a bit here. Um, a lot of AI, tra AI training is not obviously not something that's just going on in higher ed. There's a lot of AI training that's going on in, in the L&D space as well. How do we use these tools? What can we use them for practically? And it's this to me is it, it's like another disruptive technology. It's suddenly like telling people, hey, we're switching from typewriters to personal computers. You know, it's this is again, this is just a tool. It could be used in many different ways. But I think what, what what's interesting is that AI, large language models are it's not clearly defined where or how you use them. It's people are always just figuring out the best ways or the new ways uh, to use them. So I think in your context, it makes sense. Uh, what you're saying about teaching writing it's a it's a dial it's a large language model it deals mostly in text that makes perfect sense but i guess what is the request that's coming down from on high to train faculty especially if you have this mixed mixed generation of those who've been teaching for 40 years and those who are just getting started yeah and i think that a lot of institutions are now getting a sense that using ai and incorporating it selectively, hopefully, and I'll come back to that word, is a way to have these educational institutions actually evolve and adapt. And one of the things that I mentioned in a lot of my training is, and I think this comes back to the L&D space, and I think it's very much applicable. I don't think higher ed is special. I think that we're working mm -hmm. with everything else and we have all these things that we should be considering, especially when it comes to learning. And there's a huge overlap. I actually don't think there's really a split at all between what higher ed does and what L&D does. We're working mm -hmm. with learning and teaching and the same things. But AI is a screw, it's a screwdriver, it's not a sledgehammer, mm -hmm. right? It is something that we can use in a targeted specific way. And it doesn't mean it has to be worked into everything. And I think that the powers on high who, you know, may know a little bit about the technology, but, and this happens in the L&D space too, given what I've seen, that the impulse is to work AI into everything. Yeah. Every training, every session, every tool, right? Um, and that's just not how it should work. That's not actually using AI in a way that is purposeful and actually taking advantage of what AI can do to mm -hmm. make everything more learning centered, to personalize um, curricula, all of that sort of really, really good stuff we can do AI. If we're just using AI in every single program and every single session, we're really not using it to its utmost potential. And mm -hmm. I see that in the L&D space. I see that in the program development space, right? That now you go in and every single program has AI, whether it should be in there and is actually serving a purpose or not. And mm -hmm. 
what I'm hoping in the L&D space and higher ed as well, that we're going to start seeing a little bit more focus on strategy mm -hmm. because so many of us, and I think we needed to do this. So many of us found out about AI, or maybe we knew about it for years, and we really started experimenting with it and thinking about use cases. And I think, especially for someone who didn't really know the technology, we needed to just be able to dabble for a little while. But then I think it has to be about strategy. I think that has to be about whether we're using AI for a purpose to actually make something better, or if we're just using it just to do something. Um, and I think that that focus, if it happens, is going to be very much in parallel. Um, so mm -hmm. higher education and L&D in general, I think hopefully are going to focus and move in that direction. So, so in your training, how do you focus uh, your participants on learn, developing a strategy for AI? Are there key questions that you ask? Is there a particular project you ask them to complete? Uh, do you kind of give them foundational knowledge and have them kind of build on top of that? How, how does it work in, in, in the training that, that you give? One of the things that I have them do is I will give them a quote unquote traditional style uh, material from a college course, right? So giving them what tended to be something written out, a written out lecture, something like that, um, or even just a lesson plan. Sometimes I just give them the basic bare bones and I give it to them, right? No AI in it. And I ask them um, to pinpoint one thing that could benefit from AI. Mm. Right. And then tell me why, right? Why they think that would benefit from AI. And obviously this is sort of an advanced exercise. You want them to know kind of what it is and some use cases so they, they can actually apply it. But my hope with doing that is to get um, faculty members and administrators and really everyone with L&D to really think about how we can use AI that way, right? Maybe this is a moment when you can really give a lot of agency to your learner and use AI to really give them a chance to kind of play with things, right? And then, so typically if I'm doing a session, we kind of focus on just the identifying part. So mm -hmm. on an individual level, what do you think could benefit from AI and why? And really, really trying to nail down that why, right? Mm -hmm. Not just um, because it's engaging, right? We don't want that answer, right? We want to, we can start there. That's okay. Um, but we have to be way more specific about what engaging is and whether it's good. There's good and bad engagement, but really saying, you know, here is say a class plan for a 45 minute session or whatever the amount of time is, identify one thing that AI could benefit, say why. So mm -hmm. all of that can kind of come on an individual level and then we can share, you know, however you're sharing information, whether it's online or in person. And then from there, usually we brainstorm how we can do that just as a group, right? mm -hmm. especially for faculty members who are just getting used to technology. I think that's just too much of a, too much of a pull, right? To say yeah, tell yeah. Me exactly how you're going to use AI. I think it's too much. So there it allows me to kind of supplement. If I have a tool that I think would help them, that's yep. a way for me to bring it in purposefully. And I find that that sort of exercise has helped reorient the conversation yes. um, because the impulse, I think, for a lot of L&D uh, professionals is to kind of fall in one or two camps, either keep AI just totally separate and not really work with it or working to everything. And I think that ideally we're somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. Um, and so I do find that that activity does help push people in that direction or nudge mm -hmm. them in that direction. <laughs> And, and just to clarify, are we talking about 
a wide range of AI tools? Are we focused mostly on large language models and using ChatGPT because that's the most accessible? What tool is uh, what tools do you is do you coach them up on? Or kind of I kind of mostly, teach. at least right now, focus on ChatGPT, just mm -hmm. because I think that um, tool overload is very much a real thing, especially if you don't really know it. I yes. understand why people go on social media and post those hundred tools that have come exactly. out in the last 30 days or whatever. I get it. It's very good for engagement. I don't think it actually helps yeah. in terms of how culture is thinking about AI because yeah. I think we have to be purposeful. And I think that I would much rather someone have a really, really solid understanding of how to use one, maybe two tools than yep. to know 20 tools sort of okay. Yeah. Um, I think that there is a skill and I teach this too, that it's involved with just picking up a tool. Or if you think that a tool might be useful, kind of learning how to learn it in an efficient way so that you're not spending two weeks learning something that you then exactly. jump and never use again. Yep. Right? I think that's its own particular skill that you kind of just pick up as you do it more and more. But in general, I focus on something like ChatGBT because it is very much a Swiss army knife as compared to other AI tools that you can. And that's kind of the beauty of something like this, that you can give it specific parameters just for that chat, right? You don't have to mm -hmm. retrain. You don't have to do a bunch of retraining or anything like that. And so I find that in that sort of exercise, when we're looking at something, identifying a potential moment when AI could help, and then going from there, I find ChatGPT very, very helpful because it allows you to kind of have a not just have a more general approach, but being able to kind of personally target it in a way that mm. other LLMs won't allow you to. But there are yeah. other tools that I have them use, and a lot of this is based off of what um, faculty members think they would benefit from. And I always ask them, you know, what parts of their day do they wish could be more streamlined? And my personal approach with L&D professionals and faculty members is that with something like AI, we can be more efficient and that's great, right? It allows us to save time, but the goal is to be more efficient so that you can be more effective. So you save some time with one part of your day and then you repurpose it, right? Mm. So one of the tools that I do that with, and I've gotten a pretty good response out of this, is Gamma. And there are a lot of tools like this. So some people like Gamma, some people like Beautiful AI, Tome is can, another one. Can you break um, down Gamma real quick and just explain what that is for someone yep. who might not be familiar? Yeah, so, so Gamma is basically a program that allows you to put in text input and get something visual out of it. So right now, Gamma can create a rough draft of a PowerPoint presentation. That's a lot of what... Um, faculty members really, really want. Um, fact, so you can do a PowerPoint presentation. You can do a document. So if you want to create kind of a visual representation of whatever you're teaching, um, it allows you to do that pretty quickly or a website. And they're not perfect as with any AI program. There's a lot you need to do to kind of um, take care of things and personalize them. But they, it is a very quick way. So Gamma is a very quick way to either write in your own prompt. And I think you get like 300 words or whatever it is. So you can write in a prompts, tell it what you want in it, and it can create a PowerPoint presentation. The other thing that they just added was, I think that they're calling it a text transformer. So you can actually go in and you can upload an entire document. So, and this really helps 
faculty members. So if they have, say, a three-page long document, right? So it used to be kind of just a lecture that you would just pop on the <laughs> LMS and cross your fingers and hope people will take a look at it. But now you can actually upload it to Gamma and tell it to convert it into a PowerPoint presentation. Mm -hmm. And again, there are some things that I think it's getting better at. Um, so organizing bullet points, being really streamlined, I think it's getting better, but it's not quite there yet, at least not at the level of a human. But as a way to get rid of, not, not get rid of, but to fast forward through a lot of the slide creation, mm -hmm. formatting, finding basic visuals and basic layout, right? That used to take hours and hours just before you got to content. Now yep. you can do that in a minute, right? Yep. <laughs> um, and so that's something that I give to faculty members because it is something that basically makes part of their jobs easier. And then they can use it for something else. They can do something that's more student facing. They can give more student support. They can send an email to that struggling student now, even if they couldn't, you know, a few months ago, right? Pre-gamma, pre-AI, wherever they are on the journey. And so that's what I kind of focus on. So I do a lot of chat GPT. I do a lot of gamma. And then from there, another kind of genre of tool that I've learned to just teach faculty members is just something that's cool. And originally I didn't like this. I didn't like just picking just a cool program, but now I do it because when I go into a training, I think that one of my jobs is to just let people be excited. I think mm. that that's important. I think that there's all this pessimism around it in higher ed space. And so just trying to show them something that yeah, there are use cases for it and I can give that to them, but just showing them what AI can do. And so my current, one of my favorite ones with that is Stable Doodle. And so it gives, and it's, so it's part of Stable Diffusion's set of tools. And so it allows someone to go in and just draw something. I'm kind of a terrible, I'm a terrible drawer. I, my mind just doesn't work that way. It doesn't really work visually very well. Um, and I've always been that way. So. I really, really struggle drawing anything, but stable doodle, you can do just a basic drawing. It can be really, really simple. You can put in a prompt, whatever it is. So whatever uh, you can describe it, whatever you're trying to draw, and then you can give it a style and you can switch them up and everything. And it will take your input and create something out of it. And it does a pretty good job being loyal to whatever you created. And so I give that to faculty members. And yeah, some of them will say, oh, I can use that in my classes for a drawing and illustration, which is great. And so that's sort of kind of the icing on the cake. But for me, just having that tool in my back pocket that lets faculty members know that, oh, this is actually something evolving and cool and is exciting and fun. I think that's an important part of it too, at least where we are right now. Maybe once we get more into the fall, maybe we won't need that. But right now I find that I need that additional tool just to kind of show people, oh, this is just kind of fun. Yeah, two things that uh, that I, I think are important to pull out that I think are applicable to everyone are, one, this idea of using large uh, AI or other uh, using large language models or other AI enabled tools to reformat, restructure and repurpose the same the same type of content. I think just like we may have just had, you know, at one point there was just the lecture and on the student side there was the essay or the exam. It's like as we've gotten more and more technologies and as the ways that we view that information has become different, it's like a PDF could also be um, it could be a mobile friendly five minute course. It could be a, um, it could be a series of tweets. It could be, uh, 
the, uh, the thing that just came to mind was, you know, all those projects you get in middle school where it's like the first time your teacher says, Hey, you could make a clay, you know, a clay figure, you can make a diorama. We suddenly lose a lot of those ways of communicating information when we move into the higher education space, or if we move into the, the professional space. So, uh, AI is a good way to kind of reformat and restructure information to make it more useful for who you're talking to. And then the other thing that I think is so great is you, you've included this tool and you, you call it the one that gets, let people be excited about AI, but something that these tools allow us to do is they kind of shorten that gap between what you can create as a novice versus what your brain would consider acceptable uh as a creation. For instance, when you start out sketching, if you don't copy like Bob Ross or paint by numbers, the 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 window or that gap becomes so extreme that you'll probably quit sketching. But if you give them a tool that's cool to explore and get them excited about it, they could then the 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 people who are taking your training can then feel better about, oh, you know, if I can make something this good in five minutes, what could I make in 15? I think that's exactly right. And the beauty of AI, and this is what I'm optimistic about, is that it can lessen friction that in the past mm. just made us abandon it. Yeah. One of my big examples is universal design learning. Mm -hmm. Many teachers who I talk to, whether they're in the L&D space or higher ed, they are sold on it, right? They've been sold for a while. For years, they recognize that Universal design learning is what we should be doing. We should be thinking about different formats. We should be thinking about giving our students or learners information in different media, right? And give them the ability to just have that, that sort of, and we know that that works, right? We know given the learning science and a lot of us intellectually, we are on board, but practically we weren't yeah. doing it. Yeah, we are not satisfying the requirements that we all know should be there. Yes. And part of that is just workload. Part of that is just the amount of time and just the friction that's built into it, right? Those UDL guidelines are changing. They are just always evolving based off of what we learn about just how the human mind works and how people work. And so my hope is with something like that, with UDL, that now with something like AI that we can use, right? It's not going to do all of the work for us, but it's going to make us do it much, much faster. That yeah. I can go into chat GBT or you know, another AI program, and I can have, if I had that written out lecture, right? I usually don't, but say I did, I could now make it into a video. I can make yeah. it into an image. I can make it to a diagram. I can have a set of learning materials in about five minutes, right? I yeah. can have audio. I can have all these different things. In the past, that would have taken me a day. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been Easily. like yes. I would have had to say, I'm going to set aside all on you know all of Monday. I'm not going to do any training. I'm not going to do any teaching. I'm just going to create these learning materials. And now, just having AI relieve that tension, that yeah. um, friction a little bit, I think is going to. And this is what I'm optimistic about. It's going to make us just better at our jobs because we're going mm. to be able to make things UDL compliant. We're going to be able to work in principles that intellectually we are all sold on, but practically we just felt like we couldn't do or we couldn't keep up with it. And now we can use AI mixed with human judgment <laughs> and human feedback. We can actually make those things work in a way that help our learners and help our students because we weren't doing that. I think that if you went through, you know, any sort of college and looked at which professors were actually using universal design learning, they're talking like 
in terms of percentages, probably single digits, right? People yeah. are actually like yeah. doing that. Um, it really should be, you know, 80 to 100 percent or, you know, doing these things that we know work for our learners. And now I'm hoping that AI will encourage us to do that. Yes. Yeah. I, I was even thinking that 80%, that's, that's very generous because I know on your, you know, the, just given the workload and the amount of daily work you have to do the, the, uh, I can understand why some professors have had the same curriculum for 40 years, because to go and do the, all that again is, is incredibly difficult. Um, you know, it, I, I think setting aside, if we were, we were to set aside, uh, kind of all these obstacles that we put in play that, that we've been talking about or these challenges about getting people to adopt AI in their curriculum or in their training or, um, you know, all, all the, you know, problems of, uh, of trying to figure out who's cheating or not. If we set that all to the side for a second. And, um, I think if you'll join me in this, just thinking about if we were to create a university together, because I think you've acknowledged at the beginning of our conversation that the four-year program or you know, the way that we teach, a lot of it is broken, has entrenched problems. And um, we wanted to teach AI literacy. So you know, if, if you or I had the opportunity to go back into undergrad and we'd come across, uh, come uh, away with that, uh, with a bachelor's degree and, and have the necessary AI literacy skills. I'm curious, um, you know, what are the skills that you would hope that uh, students are leaving with after four years? Yeah, so if I if we were to work together and create a college from the ground up, let's <laughs> do it. Control, I do think, and you mentioned this already, AI literacy needs to be a fundamental value, not just something that's just attacked onto it, but it needs to be a driving value. And so the first step I'd be, I think, for developing that college university would be to think about values and to think about ethical responsibilities. And I mm. do find myself really couching it in those terms. So for me, a major ethical responsibility is we need to get our students ready for the workforce, right? That that is an ethical responsibility. If I'm not, if a college isn't doing that, they're not doing what they need to be doing, right? Yep. It's not the only thing they need to do. They have other yep. jobs, other things they're trying to balance, but that needs to be a core thing of what they're doing. And so if they're doing that, they must have AI literacy built into kind of the core. And I think that over the next few years, we're going to see more and more colleges doing that. We're going to see the emergence of what I'm starting to call AI universities, right? Mm -hmm. um, which isn't a fully AI college or university, it doesn't have to be that, but that they have something about AI built, just baked into them because our students, so if you go into a classroom and you ask students about AI, they will have, some of them will have positive, some of them have a negative, some of them won't want to use it. And that's okay. I understand that emotional response. I get it. I don't belittle it at all, but we all mm -hmm. have to know about it. We all have to have AI literacy, which is yep. the ability. And I see AI literacy is having a couple of major buckets, right? So bucket number one, or I guess skill number one is just being able to learn about AI. That is its own skill, right? Just being able to work through kind of the information overload and especially now and i think this is going to be the case at least for the foreseeable future we're going to see ai built into everything it is evolving so fast and so part of ai literacy is to just be able to have processes as individual as they need to be to just stay afloat right yeah and this is really learning how to learn right yeah um, ai literacy in many ways isn't special it's just information literacy 
with tech <laughs> kind of built into it. That's really all it is, or at least how, how I see it. Um, so being able to just learn about just learning this kind of technology, I think that's such a huge part of AI literacy. Another skill in AI literacy is being able to look beyond the surface. Right, so if you see an AI product or anything like that, being able to have a basic understanding of the nuts and bolts behind it, right? Not everything. You don't have to be able to say, oh, that video was created. This is how they did it, right? But being able to say that in a very general way, these are the thing that's these are the things that are happening to produce that. And it happened to me as I actually interact with that mm -hmm. product. And I think so those kinds of AI literacy need to be a huge part of the college and university. And I actually build curricula around that. I think at least today, and I don't think this is going to change in the next couple of years, I think every undergraduate should have required courses or whatever you want. They can be micro-credentials, however you want to design them, but around generative AI. Well, this is our university, uh, I, so we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah, being able to design around that. So if we wanted to create, um, you know, a program where students are actually learning generative AI, not in a one and done thing, not even just in a single course, but being able to work towards students learning how to learn about AI. Right. That mm. means learning how to use a tool because a lot of them will go into the workforce and they're going to say, and we can't predict what these are going to look like now, but their bosses are going to say, I want you to do this. And they're either going to say, here's a tool to do it with, or they're going to say, go find me a tool to do it with. Right. And so I think our students graduating from our hypothetical college need to be ready to do that. And I would create a program around that. So you can be very, very mm. sure by the time they graduate or hopefully have the ability to actually survive in that world. And I think a huge part of that is going to be teaching entrepreneurship, being able to teach students. And there is a way I think to, you can either have entrepreneurship built into that AI program, that generative AI program, or you can have its own thing and have them linked. Um, but more and more our students are going to, go into a work environment where they're going to have to take it upon themselves. A lot of them are going to be starting their own business. That's kind of the traditional entrepreneurship, but also just being able to kind of piece things together in a creative way. And I think that's going to continue to be the case for a lot of our undergraduates. So thinking about, you know, ethical responsibilities, a big one being preparing them to just have a job and to, mm -hmm. or to have their own business, just survive in this new environment. And then from there, building a program around AI literacy and generative AI and just kind of going from there. But I would have it, I would have AI baked into just the heart of the college. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think what's interesting there is, you know, if I'm applying what you're, what you're saying about, you know, first they have a foundational understanding about the technology at play. Then they have this literacy and being able to discern how different tools that have, whether that's AI plugins or different different types of, of technology, how they're actually producing their output. That seems like the second point. And then the third is entrepreneurship, which to me speaks to an ability to problem solve and kind of reach into that uh, AI grab bag of tools to pull out the one that they will need for the job. And I think what that makes me think is that uh, the, future, the future workforce that would come from our amazing four-year program is that they're it's less about roles and more about 
it's like not uh, their skills, but their skills that are AI enabled. So it's, you know, how do you have the opportunity? Do you have the resources to get this task done? We're, we're giving you these tasks at work. Do you have the skills? And if not, can you use a AI enabled tool to solve this problem? Yeah. And I think that in designing this college, we should focus less on product and more on process. Now, mm. obviously one way to get there is to have our students creating these products with AI that the, I think the optimized undergraduate degree is going to be part project management. I think it's going to be a yeah. huge part of it, right? Being able to not just like write a paper, which, you know, really hasn't been that relevant as a workplace skill for a really, really yep. long time, but being able to work with these different individuals and AI programs and be able to yep. create something out of synthesizing everything together. So I think product, product management is going to be a huge one and also just being able to show our own process. So a lot of people are already making really, really cool stuff with AI, mm. right? And our students need to get there. They need to get to the point where they're being creative, they're being innovative, they're trying to figure out how they can use AI for their own personal voice. But then what's really going to help them is at the end, being able to reflect on the process. So being able to show not just a product with AI, but being able to show a product that kind of says, this is my AI literacy. This is how I'm demonstrating it and being mm. able to say that. Cause that's what I think is going to get people jobs, right? Not just saying, here's a cool video I made with AI, right? But being able to show in very purposeful way, you can do this with the website. You can do this with the portfolio. There are a lot of different ways to approach this, but being able to say, here's the process and you do it in a way that shows that you're literate with this kind of technology and are also thinking beyond the technology. Mm -hmm. I think that is its own, that's a skill in and of itself, right? And that's part of AI literacy too, that we're not just letting the technology kind of run away with us, but we're finding ways to throw in the human and being able to mm -hmm. just basically say, you know, for our college undergraduates, make something and then identify where the human parts are. What yeah. did you add to this, right? What do you think you did that AI could not just do on its own? And yeah. have that be something that they can show, right? Something that you could actually show as evidence, um, probably virtually, because it just makes sense. But regardless of what it is that you can bring, if they want it, you can bring into that interview or show them, you can show your employer and say, here's the thing I created, here's how I created it. And here is what I added as a human and how I kind of move yeah. things along. I think that's gonna be what gets them jobs in this new world, if I had to guess. <laughs> Well, Jason, it sounds like we, uh, you know, it sounds like you're on the path to constructing that that incredible four year program. Um, just because that, you know, we, we only have so much time that we could cover. If folks want to get in touch with you about creating this program, or even just get in touch with you, what's the, what's the best way to do that? Today, the best way is through LinkedIn. That might be different tomorrow. <laughs> For anyone who knows me on social media, you might know why I'm saying that. Um, so you can follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I currently have two accounts. I'm getting one taken away, but <laughs> that's a good thing. <laughs> but the bigger account, you're finally there. Um, and then also you can just um, type in my name. So jasongoulia at gmail.com. You can send me a message there too. Um, and I'll get it. And so yeah, everyone can feel free to reach out to me. I love talking and hopefully I will be on LinkedIn and still be engaging there. Um, but I'm coming up with more ways of contact, but LinkedIn is probably right now the best way to do it. 
sounds good. And we'll keep our fingers crossed that the bad things never happen again. But uh, Jason, I couldn't appreciate you more for coming on and talking to us. Uh, this has been, uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Kevin. It was a pleasure.